Eddie. Last week we had Bill Gates for dinner here and he said that he has a ridiculous amount of money and it's so hard <laughs> to find appropriate ways to do good with the money. Yeah. So what does money mean for you being the first person uh, in history uh, that has uh, a net worth of a uh, three-digit amount of billion? The only way that I can see to uh, deploy this much financial resource is by converting my Amazon winnings into space travel. Mm. So that's basically, Blue Origin is expensive enough to be able to use that fortune. Um, and I'm currently uh, liquidating about a billion dollars a year of Amazon stock to fund Blue Origin. And um, I plan to continue to do that um, uh, for a long time. So, and you know, so, because you're, I mean, you're right, you're not gonna, you're not gonna spend it on like a second, you know, dinner out. Welcome, friends. David here for Left Wrecking 120. How's it going, Matt? It's going well, David. Good to be with you. Uh, I always like to go refresh our memory on uh, Jeff Bezos and how he just uh, just can't figure out how to spend all this dough. And I will just tease earlier, we have Corey Pine, uh, whose uh, article in The Baffler about, uh, it's an older article, but it, it's still relevant, about the privatization of space explora exploration. Um, uh, you know, I, I it's something that I, I've been really stewing on for a while. And uh, yeah, I forget where my train of thought was going on there. Because I, like, I mean, Jeff oh, yes, here it is, here it is. Uh, you'll never guess what it directly precedes that discussion there. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Well, if you want that, we'll be playing the rest of it later. So uh, yep. make sure that you join us. Corey Pine, good friend of the show and also TMBS alum, will be joining us. Um, and then a little bit later, we have Izzy Bear Breen, um, who's going to be joining us to talk a little bit about what's been going on in Minnesota, um, you know, which is a state that I think a lot of people have been sort of maybe seeing, maybe going red in, in their crystal ball hasn't really been the case and he talks a little bit about why um, the progressive movement has been as successful there as it has been um, we're also going to be taking a, a quick jump in to look at all the stuff that's happening with our illustrious attorney general right here in the great state of texas um and we got more fun stuff coming to the post game patreon.com left reckoning if you missed it we had emma vigeland on the program for our bonus episode last sunday um really got the right wingers mad um from the one minute 30 second clip that matt put up on twitter oh uh, you're quiet yeah those people uh they live bad uh it's very interesting how provocative that is uh i especially like calling people pro uh or anti-homeless libertarians i mm -hmm. think uh, uh certain right-wingers don't like that uh, formulation even though it's uh absolutely true and i'll just say as uh, Andrew Gillum, a now disgraced former <laughs> gubernatorial candidate for Florida, said about Ron DeSantis, a hit dog will holler. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, we'll get access to that over at patreon.com slash left reckoning. But before we get to Corey, I mean, we got to talk about the big news here, and that is um, the likelihood here um, of very significant cuts to social programs in order to appease the Republican Party. And you know, it's been something that's been a slow boil for a little while. We've been talking about in this program, um, you know, particularly what it's going to mean for people um, who are on social programs like TANF, people who aren't SNAP. Um, these work requirements are extremely draconian and nasty and anti-worker. 
and again, completely avoidable. One, this is something that's avoidable. It had the the Democratic Party had the foresight, which they knew about it. Um, yes. To do well, something. Like, I'm sorry, like in both of our lifetime, Matt, since you've been covering politics, right? Yeah. Right. Because we've both been adults in this world. Um, How many budget fights have you seen in this country? Yeah, I mean, there's especially like one with Joe Biden, should you remember, because he was vice president uh, during mm-hmm. Obama's. And and there's this thing here, which is, you know, the the Joe Biden and the Democratic apologists will say this is they're averse uh, for like they're worried about certain things happening. Well, if you're so averse to this situation, you could have dealt with it in in December. And they are what they're really averse to is dealing with the part of the party who actually wants this sort of shit so they can actually grind people's uh, faces into work requirements or can codify the, uh, uh, you know, re- uh, return to student loan repayments, right? Like they, and, and there's zero appetite among party leadership to deal with those people. Like they've, and it's been a constant and not even party leadership, but like Jayapal. And like, that's why we've talked about uh, the, the failure of the progressive caucus to, name that thing and that's why it's so laughable to consider this fdr uh, sort of presidency oh I God, I guess, are you kidding me to be fair fdr wasn't going to call out the like jim crow part of it but he at least like called out um the like i mean he, capitalists he, know, of course like yeah. but fdr would never let um for example um the republicans kneecap his major spending policies like this or the corporatists or uh, you know pro-capital wing of his own party mm-hmm but you brought up Jai Paul, so let's bring her up for a second. And I mean, before we bring her up, I mean, like, I think everyone at this point knows what's in this, um, which is a real quick, um, you know, understanding. One, it does nothing um, about the military budget, right? It's going to allow the military budget to continue to grow exponentially. It's a green light, yeah. <laughs> There's no attempt, you know, this is talked about as a fiscal crisis, right? Oh, we don't have enough money. We need to, like, reduce. Uh, we, I, and when you don't have enough money, you have to do two things. You have to make cuts to spending. Right. Even just like a household, the favorite analogy of little freaks, the household, like if you don't have enough money, you either need to cut your spending or you need to increase your income. Um, This does nothing to increase um, the income. In fact, it kneecaps a lot of policies that we're going to at least be able to get back some of the tax revenue that the wealthy hoard. Um, And they already like the thing is like about the American tax code is this already fucked up in the way that it's written. But then in practice, it's even worse, right? So these cuts that are likely coming to the IRS uh, mean that like those super wealthy people who already don't aren't taxed like on the on the piece of paper high enough, but also don't pay the taxes that they're required to pay in the first place because they have lawyers and a lot of smart people around them who shield them um, from audits from the IRS. Um, you know, cutting that IRS funding means that more and more of those people won't be paying their taxes. On top of it, I mean, the most draconian things is is the, these increases in um, work requirements um, for people on TANF and on SNAP. Um, you know, there, there's we've already been talking about, for example, what's already happening for working people with the end of fundings um, for certain Medicaid expansion programs in this country. So working people are about to get hit, are already getting hit with that and are about to get a one-two punch of, you know, all of these other cuts. And then on top of it, um, very likely to be a forced repayment of of people's student loans after um, you know months of Biden saying that you know your student loans for significant portions have been forgiven. Yeah, and and the only like good news there is it might be saved at the cost of getting progressives to vote for this shit, <laughs> right? Because right now um, Ayanna Presley is trying to uh, get an amendment passed that you know saves that provision. 
But then to say we're going to vote for like work requirements, we're going to go through this whole song and dance by doing work requirements on people 49 to 50. Like, get out of here with this. Well, let's let's let Jai Paul talk for a second and then we can talk a little bit more about the progressive caucus. It is bad policy. I told the president that directly when he called me last week on Wednesday um, that this is saying to poor people and people who are in need that we don't trust them. And the average amount of assistance for SNAP, for example, is $6 a day, Jake. Mm. I mean, we're talking about $6 a day. And, and I think it is uh, really unfortunate that the president opened the door to this. And um, while at the end of the day, you know, perhaps this will, because of the exemptions, perhaps it will be okay. I can't commit to that. I, d I really don't know. Um, and our caucus, and it's not just the progressives, across the ideological spectrum, including problem solvers, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, people feel that this is bad policy. So, so uh, it's, it's very unfortunate that it's even made its way into the discussion. Frankly. So but what I'm hearing from. And yeah, I mean, no doubt about it. This is bad policy. Right. But what does that mean? Um, because it's 100 percent bad policy. You don't even have to really spend a lot of time trolling through the details to recognize that it's bad policy. It's Republicans trying to manufacture a crisis so that um, they can be able to govern even when they're in the minority. And, you know, I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of great statements um, from the Progressive Caucus over the next few days. Um, there's going to be complaints about how Biden is being too quick to bend over for them, um, how we shouldn't acquiesce. Um, but the real question at the end of the day for me is this is I mean, there was a, um, you know, Jai Paul said the other day that uh, that the White House, Joe Biden and them should, quote, worry about whether or not they have votes within the progressive caucus. And I'd really like to see that threat delivered on because we've heard a lot of stuff like that since Joe Biden has become the president when it comes to the progressive caucus. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's sort of like uh, where I landed on. And it's, we have Corey Pine here about UFOs. Like I am absolutely ready to believe that and actually want to, uh, I want to see it, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know, you should, why he shouldn't be worried. He should know that he doesn't have it. And like, I, uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is something that is as clear as day. And I'll just say this um, sort of wrap up. This is a picture. Uh, this is like a window into your past friends. And this is a window into your future. As long as the, the progressives in the Democratic Party continue to play the game that they've been playing for far too long, as long as working class politics is sort of sequestered outside of politics, having like slight areas where they can influence this or that politician potentially this is what it's going to be forever a threat from the far right not just complacency um from the the centrists and the liberals in, in power um but in this case like outright willingness right kicking and screaming but outright willing publicly right making a big deal about it but a lot of willingness to do things that harm millions and millions of poor working class americans um and you know we could talk about strategy and, you know, oh, well, this candidate is worse that than that candidate when it comes to presidential election. But sooner or later, this is just the fundamental reality is that we have a government that is either outwardly hostile to working people or one that kind of like says, I hear you and I see you. Um, but also no chicken uh, this, you know, on, on the dinner table this week, friends, um, because we're going to be letting the Republicans write policy for us. Um, it is truly a, a joke. We've seen the progressives continually falter, and I think most notably when they, when many of them stood with Joe Biden and blocking the railroad strike. 
Um, this is a moment that I think is really clear. There really is no reason for them to support uh, th this this agreement. They should all be voting now, and it shouldn't even be a question. If you want to throw in some amendments, right, to maybe lessen some of the blow, to maybe protect certain programs or things like that, do it, and then vote no, because your name should not be on something that is cutting social programs for working Americans. It's just I mean, it's, if you call yourself yeah. a progressive, Lord help me if you call yourself a socialist, you shouldn't be voting yes on a bill that will take food away from hungry people. It's almost too late for them that, like to, to avoid it to like the, the under the gun nature of this and to the point where they should have just said, no, you're not going to have our votes if you negotiate this thing. Um, because now it's like, uh, you, I don't know, you take the economy, then it's them and not the Supreme Court. Like they should have been making it the entire time. Like it's, be it's because of student loans or whatever the fuck. Like th this is a complete catastrophe. And it's one like, you know, Bernie put in his Senate uh, stationary um, in December. Hey, do this now. And yeah, I mean, that's the thing is they they have they have a very strong uh, protected part of the party that didn't want to avert this situation mm -hmm. and went right. Still, by the way, has all the power to avert it too. You know, oh, of course. I mean, yeah, I like it. Look, the Fourteenth Amendment would have been better probably back then to say, "Hey, we're doing this to give like the markets or whatever." But yeah, I a hundred percent agree. Just do the right thing, and then like. If there's a fallout, like that's what happens when you do dumb shit and you need to actually just move beyond this. Because this thing where it's like Biden saying, well, we're going to kick this can down their own. But next time we come across this can, we're really going to look at it then. Like, of course, no, it's going to be. <laughs> I mean, this is exactly what people were talking about. Mint the coin during the Obama administration mm -hmm. on NPR Planet Money. Right. Like yeah. the, the, just really gearing up for next time. And no. And, and last thing I'll say is this, is that structurally for the progressives more broadly, but I think most importantly um, for people who identify as like socialists, right? The whole point of doing these kind of things is to be in positions of power. So at moments like this, you can fight for working people and to continually fail at that, you know, uh, you know, becomes indefensible. Um, Inflation Reduction point. Act. Yeah. And beyond that, this also comes to us, to people listening to this program. You know, people did not talk enough about what the end of this COVID funding meant for millions of people on Medicaid. It it it, it fell like we did a couple of videos on it. Very you know small audience reach on that. Other people who covered it got very very little traction on that. If you think that um, you know that you consider yourself a progressive or a socialist and you find that like media and framing narratives is important, when these things happen and it just is another part of the news cycle right? We're all failing at our jobs. It's just like as, as like leftist people who want to see a better America, because it needs to be really clear who the actors are in this kind of thing, because what is going to be pumped out into the public um, is that it is the Republican Party who sort of forced out of some brilliant technical maneuver to make Joe Biden do these things. And, you know, they fought hard, but they couldn't win at the end of the day. Right. And it's like we can laugh at it. And it's, it's funny. It's insane. But like we have to also be able to own this narrative. It's like, no, they are responsible at the end of the day for what they do here. And, you know, it starts certainly with the politicians and the politicians who consider themselves to be progressives or democratic socialists or whatever. But it also comes down to this entire movement out here that you can't just let these things move away in the news cycle because they're really damaging. Um, and they set 
all kinds of working class politics, not just like the actual experience of people, but just like the idea that things can maybe get better um, by participating in politics when 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 these things fail. Yeah, I mean, I think the most useful thing about the, this sort of failure is how clean it is, because the idea that Biden was maneuvered is, I think, ludicrous. Here's Joe McCarthy, his opponent in this. For things we bought that we can return, like COVID money, money to China and others, we're bringing that back. We might have a child that has no job, no dependents, but sitting on a couch. We're going to encourage that person to get a job and have to go to work, which gives them worth and value. So, so they're saying like a child that has no job sit on a couch collecting welfare. That is the second time he said that. He said, and that's not, the work requirements are for childless adults. Mm -hmm. And so like, that's the mastermind opponent is the guy who's saying we're putting children to work to, yeah. to like motivate them, right? And, you know, so you get a clear sense. It's like psychology, right? Like you can, you can dissect the stories you're telling yourself in your mind about um, your life. But the real thing that's telling the story is how you behave. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Um, well, folks, we're going to take a, a quick break and we'll be right back uh, with Corey Pine. Uh, so stick around. We're going to be talking about the rich and their efforts to colonize space. We'll see how uh, likely that is and also if that's a good thing or not. Yep. Actually, we'll try to bring Corey on. Uh, All right, you want? Yeah. Corey, are you there? Okay, we might have to give Corey a call. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, all right, folks. I'll play some music, and we'll be uh, we'll be right back. All righty, folks. Looks like we have Corey now. Uh, welcoming to the broadcast now, one of my favorite tech writers and also a co-worker, uh, uh, Majority Report, uh, writing the AM Quickie. Uh, Corey Pine, welcome to the show, author of Live, Work, Work, Die. Thanks for having me, guys. And I missed one back. work as, as, as I say that. Live, Work, you know, work, it's a, work, Die. There's three works, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I usually give people a pass just like if they mispronounce my last name. It's, you know. Am I doing that? No, Pine is <laughs> Pine is right. You got okay. it. I didn't mean to put that idea in your head. <laughs> if, if after all this time, um, so we have Corey back uh, to talk about a subject that's been kind of on my consciousness for a while. I I remember back at 2007, 2006, when I was first getting into podcasting in the skeptic movement in the astronomy sort of sphere. They would talk about this uh, privatization debate. And this was before I had like sort of strong socialist conviction. So at that time, it was sort of like I was hearing both sides of it. I'm like, ooh, I'm interested in these guys that say this is going to bring a lot of innovation. But it was kind of like settled. It was like, we're going to do this. And so, uh, Corey, uh, you have this piece in The Baffler. Uh, let me uh, flash that up for people. Um, that I think really uh, – I, I, I sort of put the call out um, for uh, anybody who's done a treatment of this issue. And I didn't know that you'd – done a piece in the baffler dawn of the space lords uh you put up here and i got this uh let me just share it so people see it and um so i guess the first question is we know we know like elon now like this whole generation i feel sad that like almost like 
like current younger generations don't really even maybe even have the sort of state NASA experience, but like what was the public space program? And, you know, I guess you can maybe idealize it a little bit and then you can, I guess, uh, uh, undermine that utopia a little bit. But before we got to this present privatization where Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are leading us into space, what was this, what, what kind of situation did we have before? Uh, well, back in the, the heyday of the space program, it was really a uh, nationalistic uh, beacon. You know, it was, it was, sorry, <laughs> got to deal with, I thought locked him out, but uh, it was, it was really like a, the, considered the pinnacle of American accomplishment um, with, especially with the Apollo program in the 60s and 70s, where, uh, you know, we sent astronauts that actually walked on the moon. Uh, nothing like that has happened since, or and obviously nothing like that had ever happened before. So it it was a way of America, sort of boasting about its technological uh, and scientific uh, advancement over other countries. Um, and you know it it didn't become a sort of privatized playground overnight. Even in 1962, when JFK, you know, gave a big speech and said we choose to go to the moon, he talked about. Uh, the jobs that would be created and the new companies that would be created to support that effort. But over the decades since, uh, it's really become what you see today, which is this sort of pathetic uh, picture of guys like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos launching their toy rockets. And, and you know, we all get to watch as they explode and don't get anywhere near the moon. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and that was a process. It, you know, it, it's interesting that you actually heard a debate about that because the process of privatization really has taken place over decades without a lot of public debate. Mm -hmm. It's something that's been decided in closed rooms for the most part. So, and I can get into a little bit about the, the incremental steps along the way uh, if you want, but. Yeah. Well, I just, I just want to like dwell on, I remember coming up, there was all this, and maybe they still to this uh, day, this advertisement of, you know, this was space technology. And there was this idea that like, um, and, and I, I think you're right. Like, the the um sort of naive idea you have growing up is oh we went to the moon because we were just curious about science and stuff and then you realize like oh if we weren't trying to intimidate the rest of the world with our technical prowess uh we wouldn't have done that either um but it is interesting like there's a jfk uh, tape i've heard where he's talking with nasa advisors and he's like actually i don't really care that much about space um right like this needs to have some sort of uh practical impact but to me it's like as cynical as that is, and like like you said, the nationalistic element of it, it seemed like more. I don't know. It seemed better than uh, like we played the, the clip of uh, of uh, Jeff Bezos saying, "I can't. I basically can't figure out how else to spend this surplus cash than you know rockets." Yeah, I mean, why should Jeff Bezos be making all these decisions about yeah. how humanity is going to uh, interact with outer space? I, there's yeah. really no. Uh, no precedent for it. And well, there is precedent for it. I mean, co the co colonial period of world history uh, is probably the closest comparison. And guys like Jeff Bezos seem bent on uh, re remaking all those mistakes. And it was better when JF JFK gave a speech to the UN a year after that 1962 speech I mentioned, where he talked about peaceful cooperation among nations in the exploration of space. And that's an idea that's really been lost. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, it's illegal. Right. There was a law, uh, an amendment passed called the Wolf Amendment in, I think it was 2011, um, that said because of national security concerns, the U.S. was 
no longer allowed by law to cooperate with China in space, or at least it needed right. clearance from the FBI and maybe Congress needed to sign off. So since 2011, that's that's been an impossibility. And it used to be the sort of utopian idea underpinning the space program. Even if it was military, it's hard to disentangle it from the military applications of launching these rockets and gaining you know, space superiority over the Earth. Uh, that idea that there would be international cooperation was there. So I, I think right. you can, you're in solid ground saying it's objectively worse now when nobody's <laughs> no. even talking about that. I know. I thank you for bringing that element of because, like, you could forgive like eight year old me for not knowing that we did this because of uh, arriving with the Russians. Because there's like the International Space Station, and we're doing uh, like all these news stories of like, look at we are doing international sort of missions together and stuff like that. And yeah, to hear that that was outlawed. That that is really. I mean, hugely scandalous. Um, but you know, you wanted to talk, or if you want to go on that, but I, I do want to give you the opportunity to talk about the nuance of how this actually did move into a privatization thing. Because, like you say, like I think what I heard on the podcasts on, like you know, um, bad astronomy or whatever was mainly, or Neil deGrasse Tyson was sort of a maybe a manufacturing consent uh, for uh, uh, decisions already made. Well, guys like Neil deGrasse Tyson, I mean, he's got different politics than Carl Sagan, who he kind of emulated, mm -hmm. you know. And mm -hmm. so on issues like you really see the libertarian stuff come out with guys like Carl Sagan or excuse me, with Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye. Um, they're very friendly to industry and, and they get a lot of their uh, support from from industry. And so they're very sympathetic to it. And it's really been industry's push that enabled this privatization to happen. So. You know, NASA was partnering with companies from the very beginning, but it, it wasn't really until the 70s that it started outsourcing heavily. And then uh, in the 80s, with the Reagan administration, uh, legalized private space flights, you know, and you can argue about whether that was a good thing or not, but it wasn't really a possibility until then. And then in the 90s, the Clinton administration set up an office of space commerce under the Commerce Department, which was really coordinating how these private how privatization and space work, finding opportunities for companies there, and then shaping the policies that would allow it to happen. Uh, and a lot, and really, I think some of the worst legislation in this area that passed was introduced by now House Speaker, then just another representative, Kevin McCarthy, and signed by Barack Obama in 2015. And it allowed uh, American companies to claim as their private property things that they find in space. So this is set up to help develop asteroid mining, a very uh, hoped for lucrative area, uh, to encourage uh, private satellite developments like Elon Musk's Starlink, and to create an incentive for American companies to lay claim to what they find in space in a very colonial manner. Well, I mean, because I mean, sorry not to cut you off, but like, I think it's an important point to make is that, um, you know, regardless of what we do internally in this country, which is usually fucked up and very also colonial as well, there's a lot of gall to say that, like, oh, yeah, that those rocks, <laughs> like the solar system, you can own those things by decree of a government of a territory on the, you know, on the planet. Well, it's absurd, right? And it's really at odds with a scientific mission. I mean, Elon Musk his plans for uh, colonizing Mars are really, uh, I've heard some astrobiologists say that if he actually achieves anything like it, it would be the end of scientific uh, discovery on Mars. Now let's say there's microbes on Mars or, or uh, fossilized evidence of past microbes. Now what's gonna happen if Elon Musk sends his uh, crews up there and they start 
digging up rocks, siphoning up water. I'm like, that is where the evidence for extraterrestrial life would be. And you'd have these companies with a mission of profit, you know, essentially getting to decide what scientific research is done. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to get to whether or not these guys are even good at it yet in a second. Um, but I mean, I, I do think that like, this is like, space as a subject is such a good spot for like social sagitation. I don't know if you were a, a, a Star Trek socialist, Corey, but I know a lot of people like had the, you know, a lot of people I've talked to, like they had some kernel of their radical politics come from like science fiction, thinking about a better future and like so many good high school, college stone conversations on the couch around like a different way of living do seem to revolve around space. Um, and like, you know, it, this is just a very clear example of something that like, regardless of even what the history is, like the aspiration is something that should be collective, should be like human centered, right? Being just directly threatened by these private interests and private corporations um, in, in a way that I think a lot of people aren't even um wrestling with like just how serious like these questions could be as as you were just saying well you know uh, the idea of whether they're capable of achieving these things is one thing but as i wrote in the baffler piece it it it's somewhat secondary about whether they can achieve it because what they're asking for is a free hand from the government to operate as they please in space yes. you know jeff bezos wants to build a you know, he's not so into colonizing Mars. He wants to build a orbital platform like in that movie uh, Elysium <laughs> you know, where all the rich people can go. And he wants yeah. to once that's done, he wants to he says, then we can turn Earth into a nature preserve. So it's like, OK, so yeah. who's, who's how who's going to who's going to who's going to execute the mechanics of that? Jeff Bezos. I mean, is he proposing? Well, the rest you know, of us, like the poor, will be the animals in the zoo. Right? <laughs> Basically, yeah, yeah. That's like <laughs> Colonel Sanders saying, "I'm gonna be vegan in heaven." Like, sure, man. Like, uh, like, how, like, I just don't buy that. Like, yeah, or, or Elon Musk being like, "Oh, de probably direct democracy." I mean, leading up to that point, we're going to like massively abuse our workers. But once we're there, we're gonna do the direct democracy. Yeah, it's a bit of a charlatan's promise. You can't you can't trust them. And, you know, pretty much the only person in the U.S. government that's complaining about any of this is Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Maybe not a surprise to your audience. But, you know, when I was doing my reporting, I found very few uh, vocal critics apart from him who are actually in a position of influence. And I'm not sure he's actually in a position to, to change, you know, this decades of, of policy drift in favor of privatization. I'm not sure what it would take. I mean, I, I'm of the mind that, you know, the U United Nations is the appropriate venue for these things, but there are treaties that would right. uh, restrict private activity in space that the U.S. is not a party to mm. and hasn't no, ratified. I, yeah, I think that's really like what I like about the pieces, like to the extent and why I think David's right in saying this is a radicalization, because like to the extent you take these issues seriously, like ex like extraterrestrials or like space travel to other other systems it needs to not be authored by these guys because like the way that they say like, you know, okay, that asteroid's ours. That's exactly the sort of behavior that would make us be very afraid of a visitor from another solar system. Right. If all of a sudden they decide, Oh yeah, actually earth, nice water you got there. Well, we can use some of that. Right. Like that's, that's exactly, it's just us projecting our va current values. And it's like, like, again, what David said, the colonial period, like Francis Drake, all these, like they're pirates for States. 
to colonize places. And yeah. that's like that's literally what these these guys want to be is they want to be the pirates. Well, it's not just us. Yeah, when you talk about us projecting our values, it's not really us. It's this sort of right. you know uh, patriarchal, old fashioned idea of who innovators are and who explorers are and who scientists are. That is very colonial in that tradition. And you know, it, when you even drill down into the workplace policies. This is another argument against privatization. I mean, SpaceX, uh, you know, allowing rich people to buy tickets to go up into space, you're not going to see the same diversity of, of different kinds of people going into space and doing that work as you would if the federal government were doing it. It's just a fact, and it's already happening. You know, sorry, this is a very parochial point, but, like, one thing that always made me happy as, like, a, as like a Texas guy um, and somebody who's also very interested in space, or just as, as a Southerner, it's like so many of these characters were just like, you know, they were just like Bubba's, right? They were just like redneck guys who the government would hire. Obviously, a lot of them came out of the military or whatever. But, you know, they were just like guys from small towns across the South. And they're just like, you're going to be like the first person to go out into the universe, right? Really, really um, amazing. And like, I'd, I'd prefer the government with its limitations, maybe having a more representative body of people having access to that than just like, yeah, do you have, what is it, $250,000 or whatever to just blow away um, to, to be in orbit for five minutes um, as the kind of line for who gets to go to space? Well, it's not just diversity in hiring. It's also, um, you know, workplace safety and other rules that are you know, they don't just come out of nowhere. They're actually important for getting the job done right, you know, and, you know, at least eight SpaceX Starship rockets have blown up in the last three years. The most recent being a couple of months ago over Texas mm -hmm. and creating a envir huge environmental problem that there's now lawsuits over and things like that. Uh, that shouldn't be happening. But when you look, SpaceX, as I discovered reporting my book, has a nickname among uh, people that are the cohort to go work for it. And it's SlaveX. Mm. And, you know, it's the kind of company where you might do a 12 hour shifts or get have to, you know, have to wake up at 3 a.m. to answer an email from Elon Musk because it's so urgent. I mean, that's not how you like sending humans into space or even just objects into space is pretty uh, refined work, you know, and it shouldn't be done by people pulling all nighters like they're doing Silicon Valley software or something. It's fundamentally different. So, so we've done we do a lot on on Musk here, particularly in like Boca Chica with SpaceX and and the damage just there. But um, we haven't really covered um, Bezos's company and like the 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 other ones that are like getting into this privatization. I mean, could you give like the audience a little bit of like the state of play, um, you know, for for these companies at, at you know um, at, at the current moment? Yeah, sure. I think the first one that people might have heard about was Richard Branson's. Virgin Galactic. I'm not sure the state of that. I think he's had to sell off some assets recently. Uh, a lot of these are money losers, money mm -hmm. losing projects, uh, sort of billionaire vanity projects in a way. Uh, Jeff Bezos has Blue Origin, um, which, as your clip said, he pours about a he peels off Amazon profits and pours them into this project. As far as uh, you know, working conditions and stuff go, it's reputed to be similar to SpaceX, which is not great and probably the engineers and astronauts would be happier in the federal workforce, I would imagine. Uh, and then in, uh, and then you've got SpaceX, which is sort of the flashiest of the bunch. And maybe, maybe the most diversified in terms of what it's doing. I mean, SpaceX is also launching these Starlink satellite satellites. We mentioned earlier uh, how, uh, 
how hard it was to disentangle space exploration from military programs. And that, and that's really obvious uh, in with, with Starlink, which has become a crucial part of Ukraine's war effort uh, and which Elon Musk, you know, sort of show uh, another way that this kind of privatization is really biting society in the ass. Uh, he, he once, he, at first he said he was going to su support Ukraine's war effort with Starlink uh, networking capabilities uh, out of the goodness of his heart for free. Yeah. After a couple months or a few months, <laughs> he says, uh, actually, this is costing too much money. So I'm, I'm going to need the Pentagon or Ukraine or somebody to, to pick up the tap for this. And, you know, the Pentagon was like, are you serious about this? Like, I think he eventually backed down because the, the PR backlash was maybe more than he anticipated. Mm -hmm. But he's really following a, a, a tech industry uh, uh, tried and true business strategy there, which is embrace, extend and then extinguish. You know, so you give the product away, you get people to embrace it and then you turn the screws. Um, and, you know, regardless of how you feel about U.S. support for the war in Ukraine, I mean, that is a pretty shady thing to try to pull. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you can, yeah. you can imagine how it might work in other domains. And, and part of the reason these billionaires are willing to pour so much of their own you know, profits, their own money into these projects is they want to own the space infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Because as countries mm -hmm. get more invested in space, whether that for military reasons or genuine you know, scientific curiosity, what, what have you, uh, to, to own the infrastructure that allows it to happen really extends their power, not just in space, but on earth as well. I mean, this is, it's a wild time where Elon's kind of branded himself as a bit of an outsider that um, you say in your piece that the, I think the Chinese space industry uh, envies his closeness to the U S government as a contractor. Yeah. Well, my understanding is that the China, China just announced a manned mission to the moon for 2030 I think Russia is aiming for one around then too, but I guess I would say China is more likely to achieve it based on their recent performance in space. Uh, but my China does have, despite being a communist-run country, does have a lot of private companies involved in its space program. My understanding is, though, that most of them are get get regional funding. That may be changing if they're trying to do a manned mission to the moon. But uh, yeah, from what I read, uh, Chinese companies that are in the space industry are, are jealous of Musk's access uh, to yeah. decision makers in the U S. So um, let's play now. I do have this direct lead in to Jeff Bezos. He's talking to a, a, a guy um, for business insider, I believe it was. And this is what he was talking about right before saying, I couldn't figure out what to spend my money on. Oh crap. I have to, I'll be sorry. I need to just refresh and I'll be right back. Okay. That sounds good. Well, while Matt, well, well, Matt's doing that, I mean, um, could you talk a little bit about uh, <laughs> the waste that's going on right now in in space too? Because that's something that's uh, unless you're ready, Matt. Um, you know, like the the way that some of these companies are operating in our atmosphere, right, isn't always the most conscientious of like the future. Yeah, they're leaving a lot of junk in space, which poses a threat to the existing space station and other spacecraft that are already up there doing scientific work. Uh, th there's a lot of concern about uh, pollution, uh, visit, like polluting the sky, the night sky as well, so to make astronomy harder and things yeah. like that. But you know, it's funny. I, you look over the uh, the sort of policy uh, wonk discussions about privatizing space. 
And actually, space junk removal is supposed to be the next big market. Will be a booming so, industry, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying like we'll figure out, we'll get around to that when we can figure out how to monetize it, and not a second uh, before. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, here is uh, here is uh, Jeff Bezos right before talking about how he can't figure out how to spend his money. So when you go study homelessness, there are a bunch of causes oh of homelessness. Uh, mental uh, incapacity issues are very hard to cure problem, um, you know, a serious drug addiction, a very hard to cure problem. Um, but there's a, another kind, another bucket of homelessness, which is transient homelessness, which is, you know, a woman with kids, um, the father runs away, and he was the only person providing any income. And they have no support system. They have no family. That's transient homelessness. You can really help that person. Mm. And you, by the way, only need to help them for like six to nine months. You get them trained, that you get them a job. They're perfectly productive members of society. Last week we had Bill Gates for dinner here. Isn't that wild? <laughs> that is wild. So Just, for people who are maybe watching later, yeah. then Bezos goes on to give his famous line that the reason he's investing in space is he has no place to spend his money. <laughs> And one of those buckets, I guess, just to circle back, was people that were not intelligent enough or too drug addicted uh, so yeah. like <laughs> to have a home. So, I mean, that's the guy who, yeah, just decide. Well, you just decide. like that's the thing is like, what is this for now? Because like we had this idea of you know, space exploration. But now when like Elon's rockets blow up. I'm not thinking, oh, we learned a bunch in the failure to get us to the you know, Saturn next time. It's I'm glad that that uh, uh, went up because <laughs> a, a, anything you did learn would have been proprietary information anyway. Yeah. I mean, is there anything that these guys don't know how to solve? It's a wonder there's even any problems in the world at all, considering <laughs> that we've got these oligarchs, you know, with essentially absolute power uh, through their money. Uh, you know, they know about homelessness. They know about space. They're really the biggest Dunning-Kruger syndrome cases around. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, well, you know, let's let's talk about the practicalities now, if you don't mind, Corey, because, you know, big claims. I mean, um, I know there's the fight between Bezos about whether or not Mars or the moon is a more viable target for the near future. Um, but in terms of, of because like here's all right, let me devil's advocate for a second like the argument i've heard from some folks even some people who um were involved that I, that i know who've been involved in the space industry the argument that they say is that space exploration exploration is very expensive and it's difficult and there's a lot of potential failures so why not let the rich and powerful as bezos said just sort of burn their money because they have no other place to do it um versus versus the government i mean how effective um, have have these folks been at like what they're sort of setting out to be? Maybe starting with Musk, who's the boldest and the brashest out of all of them. Not not effective at all. I mean, uh, according to Musk, in 2017, the missions to Mars were supposed to be underway last year. So, <laughs> you know, they're always uh, there's a thing there's a thing with timelines in tech. I think it's I think the magic number is five years. Like if you just say it's five years out, nobody is ever going to be able to call BS on you because it's far enough. It seems like, oh, yeah, if there's some serious obstacles, maybe they can get that figured out in five years. But it's also long enough that people aren't going to remember that you made the false promise <laughs> when you did. So, yeah, I think they've been the proof is in the pudding. And so far, all they've managed to do is take some rich people and celebrities up into space for joyrides. You know, I can't. Musk's the next Blue Origin Blue Origin project is to create an office 
basically an office park in space for companies that want to locate uh, in orbit to do research or marketing or whatever purpose. And it, it's just interesting to me that the biggest thing, the biggest idea he could come up with was to recreate the suburbs in space. <laughs> I mean, it's pathetic. Really, It's really pathetic. Uh, Musk's ideas for Mars are, are kind of half-baked as well, but he seems to have, you know, his idea for terraforming Mars was to drop nuclear weapons over the poles and dissolve the, the ice into water. And apart from, you know, the the military uh, strategy involved in giving a guy like Musk, who we've all seen how erratic he is from his ownership of Twitter, nuclear weapons to play with. Jesus Christ, please. No. <laughs> again, again, it raises the issue of who should be who should be deciding who gets to do that. You know, who, who what humans uh, are have the authority to decide the future of an entire planet uh, just based on what? The fact that they built successful capitalist enterprises. PayPal, with, right? Like, you know yeah. what I mean? It's like Again, like, I ask, like when we assess like extraterrestrial, if they were thinking about like, okay, uh, using a nuke on another planet, that would be called threatening behavior. And that's like the first step we're taking <laughs> on this planet. Well, in his dreams, in his dreams. So I, you know, I think, I think what, what the left should be advocating for is, is international cooperation and a, you know, oversight, I guess would be the, the normie word to use. What's the oversight on SpaceX right now? You know, I think with the last explosion in April and all the environmental fallout of that, people should be taking a hard look and saying, well, where's the oversight been? Has, has there been a deficit in oversight here? And, you know, really look, digging into the details of these contracts, you know, how many extensions are they getting? Mm -hmm. Are they, are they actually delivering on the promises? I mean, I have some of the same questions that you posed because I, I haven't seen the nitty gritty of some of these contracts. And is it just, you know, as Bernie Sanders has been asking, you know, why, why are we shoveling money to these billionaires? I mean, shouldn't the civilian oversight really not only be setting the goals for the programs, but, but tracking, you know, the performance Congress. as well. You yeah. know, let's be, let's be really clear about that. Cause I think that's an important point too, is the idea that like, it's like self-funded, um, it's not erroneous. though. It's yeah. yeah. It's 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 not self-funded. I mean, neither of these companies would be in continued operation if they weren't getting government contracts. I think it's because just because of the practicalities of of space, uh, of the law, the laws that are there, the military interest. Uh, if if Bezos and Musk did not have uh, cooperation from the government, they wouldn't be in this business. Mm -hmm. So you know, I I can see someone who wants. I think. I think a lot of engineers and scientists joined these companies because they were frustrated with the slow pace of the government programs. You know, space mm -hmm. exploration hasn't been very sexy for the past few decades. Uh, so the idea that there were these hotshot, you know, billionaires willing to pour their, their money into it was pretty enticing, I think, for a lot of employees who then found the sad truth that they're working for Silicon Valley a-holes who also, you know, can't deliver on the core, core products. I mean, it's it's like it's sorry, man. Go go ahead after this. I was just going to say that, like, it's a devastating thing. For, you know, I I I've been lucky to know a lot of scientists, and it's like it's just like devastating how much scientific research in this country now is so beholden to the power of like the rich and powerful. 
right um the like the free exploration scientific in inquiry like there's a lot of like i don't know like pop ideas about what that is that there's just people working in nice government labs but more and more of those people are just exposed to the most brutal um aspects of the american market right and like it truly limits what we're able to do yeah i think you know it, it's it's going to be really interesting to see how these uh, you know, Chinese and Russian moon missions pan out in the next uh, decade or so. Uh, and to and what happens with the U.S. space program? You know, I, I don't have a lot of hope that we'll have a whole paradigm change and mm -hmm. get back to the ideals of international cooperation in short order without some kind of, you know, something would have to happen to inspire that. You know, I don't know what it would maybe just a, ch a change in the U.S. position would be enough. You know, I'm not sure China would be running its own space station if it was easier to cooperate with the International Space Station, for example. Um, but, you know, what you do have in these different countries is competing uh, systems and competing models of how to get there. And I'm not sure that the U.S. strategy, which is right now focused on lowering the cost of getting to space, and that's how do you do that? Same as in any industry by squeezing labor. I'm not mm -hmm. sure that's going to work out for us. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, go ahead. There's a there's a there's a Neil deGrasse Tyson quote that uh, I, I want to anticipate this objection it says only rich and famous people flew in airplanes in the 1920s and 30s. Then it became a whole industry. If you were around back then, are you, saying, show, are, are you saying stop wasting your money on this stunt? And I got to say, like, first, I don't think that history is exactly right. I think like there's probably there's a lot of state investment, particularly around World War One, uh, that really kicked things off. I don't think it was just like rich guys, you know, doing super planes. Like I'm imagining some sort of like steampunk rich guys with their fancy flights. No, there was massive state investment of this stuff. And like and to the extent that like they became through, uh, you know, being a consumer product, more democratic. It's not because rich people liked it that way. Like, it's not like they didn't resist that every way. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know. Just what do you guys think about that? Like, rich guys flew so we could all fly later. It sounds pretty dubious to me. And glit, not to mention glib. I mean, yeah. like, I'd like to know what his source is for that. You know, it's, yeah. it sounds like something he kind of made up off the cuff, almost. Like, which, which rich guys? Are you talking about the Wright brothers? Or what, like, what? Yeah. It, because like to me it's like i don't know it, it th these sort of transportation decisions don't really happen that democratically and that's like this is just the new frontier of that right like it basically decided i there was the rail era you yeah, go ahead david all of this we're seeing right now is like um it's like the height of the like contradictions of the american state right like the american uh, america was like dynamic yes because of like you know you know, colonialism is this unique position in the world after World War II, et cetera. But also there was like an effort that like the state needs to play a major role in innovation and in technology, right? Um, you can talk about the purposes of that or the interest in that, but it was always there. Um, and what we're seeing right now, like, um, is like, I, I don't know, like a perfect culmination of so many aspects of state investment have been completely privatized. There's always private interests. I think you can, you can make the argument in American government policy and what it's investing in. Um, but right now it's like, we have to find a way to make sure that some rich guy feels that he's going to get enough of a return to do anything. 
Um, and it's it's tremendously uh, wasteful. It, it, it's sad because you know it's 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 stagnation, right? It's it's the sense of nothing can really get better. We just sort of have to hope that nice Mr. Bezos and nice Mr. Musk can maybe have our best interests in heart. Maybe they don't want to nuke Mars. Um, maybe they don't want to turn um, the moon into like an offshore offshore uh, you know factory for for making T-shirts or something like that. But it's really dark. <laughs> Well, it's 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 really yeah, it's disappointing you, when you read the language of the legislation that's passed over the years and the uh, the agency reports. Over time, uh, commercialization of space became a, a goal in and of itself. So you could tell that the space program was was succeeding because so many more companies were you know getting involved in launches and putting satellites into space and things like that, making money, trying to make money, and you know that it's just a it's just a really impoverished uh, vision of you know how we interact with our environment. Space is part of our environment, right? Yeah. It's just part that yeah. we don't we can't live in without a lot of uh, you know support technological. And it's like, support. and it's like Elon gets to simulate the progress of all these. So basically, for like the investors, instead of like, oh look, we got this new type of tunneling thing. It's like, does that look? all that different than how they do tunnels in Belgium, for instance, or wherever. And, but it, it has to be sold as like, Ooh, this is the cutting edge of everything. And you know what? I just say, I hope China kicks our ass to move to the moon. Uh, and I would love it if basically what happens to American space program is what happened to American basketball program in the mid two thousands, where we started getting bronze medals and we have to get serious about, you know, getting the best out, which is not these jokers, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, in charge of it. But, uh, of course, is there anything else you want to say on uh, on our topic for the evening? No, I think that about covered it. Uh, we we covered the whole space, <laughs> so to speak. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. <laughs> Thanks um, a lot Corey, for having where me. People, where should people follow your work? Uh, well, these days, um, most of my output is for the AM Quickie, uh, which is Majority Report Affiliated Newsletter at amquickie.com. It's uh, five days a week, but only three of those days are free. Uh, and, you know, I'm still on Twitter. I'm trying to get a blue sky invite. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Me too. Yeah, if I, anyone has them, send them to us three, please. My Patreon for my podcast, News From Nowhere, is still up, but I haven't put out a new episode in quite a while. So, you know, that's there if you just like what I have to say. Um, but, yeah, check out the AM Quickie. We we recently launched a, a premium product, and, you know, I try to cover basically everything you need to know in a day in uh, 1,500 words or so in a morning email. So check it out. There you, there you go, folks. Corey, thanks so much, man. It's great talking yeah. to you. Yeah, absolutely. Really? See you guys. Yeah. Man, yeah. Fucking makes me sad. <laughs> yeah. Fucking, I'm looking at Neil deGrasse Tyson right now. Dude, he's so bad with that. I mean, the uh the fall off from a Sagan to a deGrasse Tyson is is massive. Yeah. Was um, Sagan I, I I gotta look at I I I know Sagan, Sagan was, was good. That, was he good? Yeah. Yeah. No, he was very he good. You know, good, like yeah. I mean like don't want to overstate it. You don't want to read too much. And but also remember the environment he's talking into was not the most friendly to being a real lefty in, in the way that I think he right. was. Um, but yeah, no, I'm sorry. It's like night and day. Um, because like, you know, I'm not trying to be like too like dorm room about this, but there's something about 
space and that like humanity that I, I think is like um, like that, that like human inclination to like see what's on the other side that like I think like melts down the kind of contemporary historical barriers on your thought right like it's a good challenge right because if you can imagine like being interplanetary it's very dark um to think of still living under capitalism i mean um fuck what's the sci-fi show the outer rim right um uh, which is on amazon prime bezos saved it right Am I, is that the right name of for it um i've heard the story i don't know what the name of the show is called i want to make sure i'm getting it right if i'm getting it wrong somebody correct me later um but um you know it's like a, it's like a you know classic sci-fi um out of range out of range is what it's called right right um you know and it's like a very classic uh sci-fi story um actually that's not even it fuck it doesn't matter i'm fucking it up <laughs> expanse expanse thank you expanse um, the Expanse. I love The Expanse. It's just been a little while. Um, the Expanse is like a really cool show. I love it. Right. It, I, I've been a fan of it for a while. Um, Bezos buys it because it was going to go under. And there's something I mean, again, like I like the show. I'm not spoiling anything for folks, but like there's something that's really sad about it that basically it's like we are like interplanetary species and we're still under like capitalism right yeah. that like the world the universe can change right and we still have bosses we still have exploitation um and i will say in the seasons after um bezos takes over the radical bent um starts to decline pretty significantly right and it's like for me it's like it, it, it was a frustrating thing because it's like even in fantasy right these guys are like influencing um you know how we think about the the, the universe which is super sad to me yeah yeah, I gotta say, I, I when I think of like when when I've you know, listening to those astronomy podcasts, they get into the practicalities of like going to Mars, mm -hmm. and I gotta say, couldn't pay me enough. Fuck that! I'm not going to Mars. You shit me. There's no Paris on Mars. Like you can't <laughs> come back to Earth. People like the, the thing about the Mars thing. The Moon. Okay, you can maybe talk me into that. The Mars thing, unless we get a massive uh, advance in speed of travel and uh radiation protection that's gonna you can only go when they're like aligned in orbits like there's all sorts of things that are really confounding for like you can't it's, you can't just make quick trips back and forth and i don't want that i'm not going someplace for 30 years yeah. right especially a place that doesn't have you know nba games so uh like maybe the moon but that, that's the thing about this is like is it's anti-human and like so much of the ai stuff like you do, do you not understand that the human element is lacking when someone puts a chatbot that purports to be Socrates and a chatbot that purports to be Bill Clinton? I think we're going to play that in the post game. It's it's so dark. It's do you it's not a understand? real perversion. It's a perversion of humanity. A lot of this this ideology around those folks is a real perversion of humanity, and it sucks. I mean, we didn't get to make the point with Corey, but like, there's something sad to me about if you're a young kid. Like, I was super into space. I want to be an astronaut. Like, probably half of our audience when you're you know six um sad to me to think that like people are watching spacex launches on tv instead of a nasa one right yeah um it like you know it embeds the future in these guys hands in a way that's really nasty and as Corey was saying it's not particularly accurate because they're not good at achieving the things they set out to do right Absolutely. it would be a problem even if they were you know like innovating and changing the game um there's something right, we would really still be complaining about owning it. that like cultural space, the idea of it, and also just fucking up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, e even if they were doing a competent, we would still be whining, but we just have more justification now. Um, 
uh, yeah, Dawn of the Space Lords, uh, yes. Corey Pine, Baffler, great magazine. Yeah, uh, if you're not if if you're not uh, familiar with it, that's that's like OG classic, great uh, publication. Yep. All right, folks. Well, we've had a very big week in the state of Texas. A lot has happened, and I think we got to keep covering it. Um, most importantly, obviously. Um, we were graced um, by a visit from a very important dignitary of state, um, a Mr. Boris Johnson. Um, we could play a couple seconds of this. Thank you very much, and, and God bless you all, and, and, and good luck with cutting the, the budget and, uh, and cutting taxes for the people of, of Texas. <laughs> because... Gavel. Give, give us a gavel. Give us a gavel? Yes, sir. Okay, we got, I'll, I'll gavel you out. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So yes, uh, Mr. Boris Johnson did visit um, my home, and uh, I I was driving around town hoping that maybe I could <laughs> catch a glimpse, um, but I should have gone to the Capitol. Um, there's something about this Boris Johnson thing that I think is really funny because basically, um, if you don't follow Texas politics, um, last week uh, we were ending coming towards the end of the legislative session, which has now been extended, but we'll get into that in a second. Um, but basically, like Boris Johnson comes to Texas and the entire GOP just goes into complete free fall and civil war. Like literally that day, um, Boris Johnson gavels in the Senate and there was like a red wedding style night. Uh, in in the texas legislature the house and the senate who have or both obviously run by republicans have been feuding for a long time and it just exploded shortly after boris johnson gavels in that that session um with the house and the senate killing each other's bills putting poison pills on all a whole host of of, of things um, of course, if you watched the show last week, you know, we played this video of Dade Phelan, the speaker of the Texas House that was um, sort of pushed out um, very likely by friends and allies of um, our Attorney General Ken Paxton, Dade Phelan appearing very, very inebriated, if you haven't seen that. And um, the, the legislative session ends. Governor Abbott has now extended this, uh, has uh, called for the first special session, and there'll probably be more. Remember, if you're not familiar with Texas politics, we have one of the shortest, I think, if not the shortest, certainly out of all the major states in population, the shortest, legis shortest legislative window. It's every two years for only a couple months, which is pretty incredible when you think about how big Texas is that we only have a functional government uh, for a few months out of, uh, you know, uh, every two years. But Bojo comes to town, shit gets fucked up, everyone's fighting with each other, and then all of this weird stuff happens. Um, so Ken Paxton calls on the Speaker of the House to resign from his office um, for this video of him seemingly being very inebriated. Um, and then shortly after it, it is revealed that the House has been has launched their own investigation into Ken Paxton that's been going on for a while for um, for allegations of very extreme corruption. If you don't already know, before all of these house charges came out, Ken Paxton is somebody who is always in the news um, for his willingness to push the law. He has open investigations against him for securities fraud. Um, so serious, by the way, that um, he faces 99 years in prison uh, for these. So this is not some kind of slap on the wrist bullshit. This is very serious stuff. Um, but just I been the attorney general, it's just the attorney general, right? Just normal <laughs> attorney general stuff, right? Um, but I, what I what I think really irked the house 
was Ken Paxton, whose office is always in scandal, asked yet again for the Texas government, the taxpayers here, to pay for another one of his um, of of his settlements. Uh, there was a $3.3 million settlement that was agreed to with former staffers um, who were threatened by Ken Paxton when they were working in his office, and he had asked the government to pay his bills for him again. Um, so this happens. Paxton calls on Dave Phelan to resign, um, and then the House releases its uh, investigation into him, and it was much more broad than I think a lot of people expected. Shortly after that, um, there is this video, which we played last week, or I played on the Grist stream, of a dumpster outside of the Attorney General's office on fire. Now, to be clear and fair, um, the Attorney General's office came out and they said they were looking for the perpetrator. That person is, um, has uh, reportedly been arrested. The claim is that somebody just threw a cigarette in the, um, in the dumpster. Regardless if it's true or not, or if there's any nefarious play, very, very, very strange stuff that has been happening. Um, and uh, yeah, so these charges come out against Ken Paxton and they're, they're serious. Um, he has been um, charged with abuse of official capacity for diverting senior employees to perform, perform work that benefited Paul, um, this person who is a real estate developer in the city of Austin, um, where the, the attorney general's office provided at least $72,000 in taxpayer funded labor costs. Again, just for some rich fucking town. Um, who just happens to be a major donor to Ken Paxton's office. Misuse of public information for allegedly providing that same major donor with an internal FBI file related to an investigation into the developer. Um, and another charge of misapplication of fiduciary property for allegedly hiring an outside lawyer for $25,000 to work inside the attorney general's office without the knowledge or consent of senior staff to perform work that principally benefited the real estate developer in the city of Austin, right? Extreme, extreme stuff. But this is all in a backdrop of the House and the Senate effectively being at war throughout most of the session. Now, don't start, get this misunderstood idea into your head that like the, the House is some kind of group of like radicals or conscientious Republicans. These are people vying for power over each other. And if you don't know anything about Texas politics, Texas politics has been a one-party state rule for a very long time. So all of the people in positions of power, they want to be the big dog. I tell you what, all those boys are, well, maybe they're missing a trick, not fundraising off of, uh, off of uh, dumb Democrats in like uh, suburban New York. <laughs> um, like to say like, oh, this guy's against uh, Paxton. Well, let's give him some money. But uh, you might need to do that where like Texans don't get offended by it. But No. Well, I mean, and you even had some uh, um, House members in the Democratic Party vote present and not take a vote against impeaching Paxton. Um, Paxton releases a statement um, calling the Speaker of the House again, who is a Republican, like full stop Republican um, of being liberal speaker, Dave Phelan um, for sabotaging his, his work as attorney general um, quote, uh, drink. quote Paxton says every allegation is easily disproved. And I look forward to continuing my fight for conservative Texas values. Um, as I said earlier, there was a bloodbath on, on Tuesday night. This vote comes out on Thursday evening um, in the house where overwhelmingly Ken Paxton is impeached by the house and the impeachment, just to be clear with the processes impeachment house brings impeachment charges, says that there needs to be a trial. Then it goes to the Senate where, by the way, it's a body of only 31 people. Um, one of those people is Ken Paxton's wife. 
Um, but let's just play just a second of this video right quick. Um, this is sort of the, the fallout because these are the people that Ken Paxton, Patrick um, and Donald Trump have been calling liberals. So we got a second of Ken Paxton defending himself and then we'll go to the House. The fact that I was prohibited from presenting evidence to defend myself reveals that this shameful process was curated from the start as an act of political retribution. So this is about facts and this is about evidence. And at the end of the day, my call. Not trying to be stereotypical, but this is the guy that they're calling a liberal. <laughs> right this is no yeah like unless unless he takes that suit off and he's got like a full sleeve tattoo and he owns a bicycle shop like i don't think he's uh he's a lib the mustache is pretty new i'll give him that it's it's a good look it's a glow up it's kind of like when ted cruz grew a beard you're like all right somebody gave him some good advice that was too good of advice honestly whoever you gotta you stop whoever's giving that advice corruption and that's why we're proceeding to a trial in the Texas Senate. So Ken Paxton is now impeached, which means he is effectively, his office is on pause. He is, he is on the sidelines um, until either Governor Greg Abbott puts a replacement in or these proceedings finish. The, the, the plan right now is that the trial has to be held before August, I believe, 28th, which is probably bad for Ken Paxton. Because it means that this can be kicked down the road for a few months, maybe get another guy. Because I'm sorry, one of the nicest and cushiest jobs in the Republican Party right now is to be the Texas Attorney General. Because all you do is sue the Biden administration on whatever the fuck you want, right? It is like a sweet gig. It gives you a lot of national attention. There are people, I'm sure, who are clamoring um, to be in that position and I'm sure would do just as much damage as Ken Paxton has as the attorney general, but maybe without the fucking million dollar indictment sitting over his existing legal baggage. Yeah. So, you know, and again, like, remember that one of the things that really probably set this off was the fact that he asked for money again to pay for his legal wrongdoings, um, asked for taxpayer money to pay for a settlement for him. Um, and Ken Paxton, um, of course, Matt, I'm sure, you know, acted very innocently, by calling up the vast majority of the Republicans in the Texas House and threatening them with political consequences if they took a stand against them, right? Acted like a mafia boss, and it seems like the Republicans in the Texas House are done. I say let them fight. The more that this can distract them and take them away from other things is good. Um, it, it certainly took up the the most of the energy in the last few days of, of the Texas legislative session. Uh, again, we're in a special session now, but that's a limited scope. Um but the last thing I want to do is to just remind you of who Ken, Ken Paxton is and, you know, correct the record a little bit because Ken Paxton did what any innocent person would do. Went and talked to uh, Mr. Steve Bannon. It, it's um, certainly critical to my state, and that's why we fought off these 12 lawsuits. We had them in Houston. We had them in San Antonio. We had them in, in Austin. We had them in the counties where you'd have the most liberal judges. And it was a concerted effort nationally with lots of money going into it. And just knowing that we had 12 losses that we had to win. And if we had lost one of them, like we lost Harris County, Trump won by 620,000 votes in Texas. Harris County mail-in ballots that they wanted to send out were 2.5 million. Those were all illegal and we were able to stop every one of them. Had we not done that, we would have been in the very same situation. We would have been on election night. I, I was watching election night and I knew when I saw what was happening in these other states, 
that that would have been Texas. We would have been in the same boat. We would have been one of those battleground states that they were counting votes in Harris County for three days, and Donald Trump would have lost the election. Okay, so let's let's say one thing up top. Ken Paxton has been a willing advocate for Trump in his election fraud nonsense, right? Um, but let's be very clear about what Ken, Ken Paxton is talking about here because it's a very funny double move that he's doing. What he's talking about, just to correct the record, because a lot of people have gotten really worked up, and I'm not saying it's good, right? Um, but a lot of people, I think, and he's also doing this on purpose. He wants you as a lib out there to think what you're thinking that he's saying that basically we like eradicated 2.5 million votes off the voter rolls that would have flipped the election in Texas to Joe Biden instead of Trump. No, what he's talking about doing there was that he was fighting against mail-in ballots in the state of Texas because there were pushes to extend mail-in ballots in the 2020 election so that people might not be exposed to the COVID-19 virus when they went to vote for president. So he was arguing against people who were saying that they should have access to a mail-in ballot because they might have um, they don't have immunity to the COVID-19 virus. Therefore, they should get um, you know, a medical ruling that allows them to vote via mail, which we don't have in the state of Texas generally, right? With, without some exceptions. He's doing that because it gets you worked up. And then Ken Paxton is like the fighter against election fraud for the Republicans. Um, and then for the Republican people, they get to say Ken Paxton's out there fighting for us because Ken Paxton, despite all of his, um, you know, failings, all of his corruption scandals remains wildly popular with the Republican Party base, not just in the state of Texas, but nationally. Um, and certainly with Donald Trump, who has been putting his thumb on the scale in this state. Is is Trump, uh, how active is Trump in? Trump has been very active. I should have pulled up some of the truth social I usually have to go through you to get those things. I'm not well, because I saw, yeah, I, I saw an influencer, a former a Trump 45 uh, official. It was a D1 cheerleader. I forget what her name is. But she was like, this is the uniparty, uh, 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 the rhinos joining in the uniparty attack on Trump. And it's fascinating to see that split be elaborated. To me, I don't know. Maybe Trump has to take his eyes where he gets them, but even for Trump, who I think is a criminal, yeah. I think basically like a lifelong criminal, New York real estate. I think Paxton is a little bit too obvious in it, but you know, I, I wouldn't blow any of my, uh, this is the uniparty stuff on a guy who's under indictment. Like, I don't know how long ago this has been like this, like for so long, it's wild that, you know, whole it's, ab it's absolutely wild. And it, from, you know, as of today, um, his wife has not recused herself from voting again in a very small body, by the way, um, in, in, in this trial, which will be very interesting to watch. But and so this goes to the Senate now. And my understanding from you is that the Senate is more right wing than the House. Is that correct? I think the, the Senate um, is more loyal to like the big three um, being like Patrick Paxton and Abbott. Okay. right now because the house gets its power through date Phelan, who has taken a role in sort of being against paxton challenging patrick that's why they're calling him liberal you know Phelan. um so anyways we'll, i mean we'll be watching this i think that like the, the thing is though that the fact that the the trial is going to be so much later 
probably doesn't work in Paxton's favor as much as you might think. Because one, he's out of power. It creates an opportunity for maybe Abbott. Abbott has been very silent on in the past few days. This is Tuesday, um, May 30th. Maybe he says something while we're live or something later. Who knows? But as of now, he hasn't really said too much about it, um, about whether or not he would appoint somebody as an interim AG um, you know, to operate in the next few months. But like, let's just say he does. I mean, that takes some of the luster off of Ken Paxton. It gives the right wing a new person to rally around. Um, two, um, it also like, it extends the amount of time. Like Paxton's going, the reason I want to bring up the, the Paxton thing is not to like defend Paxton's honor. Um, it's to like make this point that Paxton has this opportunity right now to get a lot of media play because he's in the news. So he's going to go up there and try to say the most outrageous stuff. Ken Paxton played a huge role in purging people and trying to prevent people from voting in, in Harris County. It's not to say that like he's not participating and trying to deny people the right to vote, but he wants to sit here and say, I took 2.5 million people away uh, from being able to vote in, in that election, right? Because it, right. it, you know, it makes the Republicans who are going to be loyal to him feel a need to be loyal to him. Anyways, the point is, is that in three months and two months or whatever um, in, in August, his ability to be able to be able to project that power might be more and more limited. I don't know how it will turn out. I'm not going to sit here and make predictions, um, but I would imagine that Ken Paxton probably wanted to trial sooner rather than later. Um, so if anything, the fact that it's, it's been pushed backwards um, probably is not very good for Mr. Ken. Um, so we'll be, uh, we'll be watching this closely. We'll have our Paxton watch on the program over the summer. I know Matt's very sad that a fellow North Dakotan is being treated very, very, well, yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, this is yet another case of a guy deciding to take his political acumen to the South and getting a very frigid reception. And you hear about Southern hospitality, but I I mean, there's another example of a guy. Is this who Southern was, hospitality? The, the, there's, a, there's a guy. You know, be, actually, man, you should take on like as just a, as a bit for the next couple of months as a Paxton defender. Well, I'm saying they have Ken Paxton. Uh, you know, he has North Dakota lineage. Also, Matt Gates been getting a rough deal, I understand, with some th certain things. He also has comes from a North Dakota family. So, you know, you wonder why we don't leave because that's <laughs> that's how we get treated. And this is a last point before we go. Pranay says it also means more discoveries the longer it takes, which I think is very true. Mm. Anyway, we'll be watching this closely. Um, Texas politics is always so fun um, and horrible as they're attacking more and more trans and people and, and working class people and Mexican people and Hispanic folks. Uh, nasty, nasty stuff. But we'll keep you uh, up to date with everything that's happening. We're going to go up north to tell a different kind of story about some successes and some things to be hopeful for. Um, yeah, you know, kind of a case study. Minnesota closed out its legislative se session. We have Izzy Bear Breen, who a uh, former comms person for Ilhan and Keith Allison on, talk about the successes. Also, the uh, the the sort of um, failures. And this good case study for uh, what progressives can do um, and where, how far they're willing to go uh, with regards to, you know, passing things like the school lunch bill and certain labor protections uh, and a rideshare bill that ultimately the uh, governor vetoed. And uh, Izzy has, I think, um, interesting perspective on that. This is sort of a, a lead in. We're going to be doing a lot of Minnesota content, Minnesota content, Minnesota. We're going to do some content. Um, and, uh, and this is sort of like, you know, they've, they've had, I think, really good successes. And then to cap it off with 
uh, Governor Tim Walz immediately said, okay, Uber, <laughs> we won't go any further. And actually, we take that back. Uh, you know, I think it's very uh, instructive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I wish our federal government was uh, as, uh, you know, had as much success as frankly, Minnesota did, but it also like shows you what that isn't going anywhere. And Izzy points this out too, without the different movements, uh, labor and stuff in Minnesota and also including like the George Floyd stuff, uh, which put a lot of um, uh, energy behind these things and, you know, people who are actually going to fight for them um, in the legislature. So anyway, here is this, Oh, I apologize. Uh, Izzy had to switch over to uh, AirPods. Uh, this is just a little quick uh, a 10 minute interview. Uh, but he had to switch over to AirPods. So the sound, I tried to uh, uh, boost it up as much as possible, but uh, I think you'll be able to hear it. And uh, at the end of this, in about 20 minutes, probably about 8 Central, 9 uh, Eastern time, we'll be in the uh, post game. I think. Yeah, so patreon.com slash left reckoning. See you there. There you go. Welcome back, Left Reckoners. I'm Matt Leck. With me is Dave Griscom. Dave, hello. Hey, man. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And joining us now to commentate on Minnesota politics is Izzy Bear Breen. Izzy is a former communications director for Ilan Omar and uh, press secretary for Keith Ellison. Uh, Izzy, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks, Matt and Dave. Thanks for having me on. Always of course. Love, uh, talking Minnesota. Yeah, I mean, it's one of as a North Dakotan, it's my favorite state. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, I've, we're going to do a lot of actual Minnesota uh, content in the ne- coming months, uh, including the history of the uh, Farm Labor Party and uh, mm-hmm. and some uh, socialist stuff going on there. But let's talk about the actual electoral politics uh, specifically. Uh, Minnesota recently just finished off a legislative session that had a lot uh, good about it and then uh, a very bad capstone um, from the governor. But before we get into that, I've been concerned since I've left North Dakota about Minnesota going uh, red. I've I've <clears throat> kept an eye on the Republican Party there. It's as rancid as they get. Um, sure. It doesn't seem to have gone red. So, like, can you just give folks a background for Minnesota's uh, yeah, politics? Yeah, sure. Generally? Well, let me let me start by asking you guys a question. Um, do you guys happen to know, without looking at your notes, the last time that Minnesota voted for a Republican presidential candidate? I know this. It was, uh, it was Nixon. It was <laughs> Nixon, right? right? And that's then right. Uh, Ike before that, but yeah. Well, well before any of us were alive, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I know there's, there's always talk about Minnesota as a purple state, right? Um, you know, we had Tim Pawlenty for a while. Um, we've had a split legislature um, we've had split constitutional offices, but um, since uh, 2008, um, it really has been a, a solid blue state. Um, and if you look, actually, Biden's margins um, in 2020 were up above where uh, Obama's were in uh, 2012. Um, and, uh, you know, Minnesota has has followed a lot of um, uh a lot of trends in um, northeastern, uh, like heavily blue northeastern states, where the the kind of outstate Minnesota gets redder as people congregate to the urban core. So, like if you, uh, for example, if you look at a map of say the 2020 to 
2016 or 2020 to 2012 even elections, it looks a lot more red if you look at the county level data. But then if you look at the popular vote margins, it, it's increased for Democrats. So right. um, the party, in, in my view, has never been stronger. Uh, I don't want to say never. Um, in recent, it, it is the strongest it's been in recent memory, right? Um, now, the, the one little break there, and this is why I think there's all this news about uh, you know, the, the legislative session this time around, is that uh, we had a split legislature in 2010, right, was when the last time we did redistricting. Um, and while uh, the Republicans didn't gerrymander uh, the congressional districts, because those are done by independent uh, redistricting commissions, the uh, state legislative districts were gerrymandered in such a way that it made it extraordinarily difficult for Democrats to win the uh, state Senate, um, which is why we've had a split legislature with a, you know, D plus six to D plus eight popular vote margin, um, right? This is a very common story. You know, Wisconsin would would be a solid blue state if not for the gerrymander, right? Um, legislatively, um, so that's uh, you know that's kind of the recent history. Um, and in the uh, midterm elections, Democrats really really uh, got their shit together. Um, and I also you know I um, I have a, a, a deep and abiding love and respect both for the Minneapolis DFL. Um, and for a lot of the organizing that happens upstate. Um, but I also don't want to take anything away from the uh, uh, labor and um, organized labor and uh, social movements that really provide a, a good chunk of the ground game um, for down ballot races in Minnesota. And then, of course, look, you've got Minnesota District 5, right, um, which is uh, the district that Congresswoman Omar represents, the district that uh, Congressman Ellison represented before her, um, which is consistently one of the most heavily Democratic districts in the country um, and does wild turnout, right? In, in, the past, in the past eight or 10 congressional elections, um, MN5 has consistently been in the top 15 or top 10 congressional districts in the country in terms of voter turnout. Um, obviously drives, um, that's why we win constitutional offices statewide, and it's why down ballot, um, you know, in the Twin Cities metro, it's just a solid blue wall. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do not see Minnesota going blue or going red, excuse me, anytime in the near future. Um, and I think that pundits that treat it that way are um, you know, yeah, they just want clicks mostly, I think. Good. Uh, well, the, the, data, the data does not support it. They'll finally stop getting mine. So, you know, that kind of leads to this dynamic of these legislative victories. So we have a labor bill, including sick days, uh, mm -hmm. prohibits uh, captive audience stuff, nursing home workers and teachers, uh, bigger salaries. We have the uh, universal school lunch stuff, which got a lot of attention. We got um, uh, the minimum pay rates uh, for Uber and Lyft drivers, which we'll return to. Um, and, uh, and then eliminated requirements for for former felony offenders, basically a bunch of things that promises that got stacked up and then they finally got into a position where, uh, you know, they should, uh, they have to act on them. Um, Izzy, these, these victories in the legislative session, and we'll circle around to the ride share, 
uh, yeah. bill that uh, Wall- Governor Walls eventually vetoed. But was that basically just like, okay, you had this split government for a while and Democrats had a certain number of promises and a certain amount of energy built up because of that. And then they get in power and actually come through on certain things that probably should have been dealt with in this country a while ago, like, uh, you know, hungry kids. But at least we're getting there. Uh, no, that's exactly right. Um, so most of these bills, um, in fact, with the exception of the PRO Act, that's the, that's the uh, bill that enshrines abortion um, uh, statutorily as, as a civil right, uh, which was, I believe, HF1. That was the first bill that they passed. Um, that obviously uh, was timely uh, on the back of Roe being overturned, but uh, I believe that with that exception, every other major landmark bill that they passed this session has been in has been passed by the House, the state legislature, um, for the last uh, at least two sessions. Um, certainly that's the case with legal marijuana, um, with paid sick and safe time, uh, with some of the labor protections. Um, so yeah, a, a lot of the stuff has just been waiting in the wings. Um, <clears throat> it's not even stuff that like, you know, where it's a question of like, oh, Democrats got their shit together. You know, the DFL um, on the legislature, on the legislative side, has had their shit together for a while. Um, and they, the caucus is quite progressive overall. Um, and the issue for the last uh, four or six years has been a single senator. Um, you know, there's a one or two Senate uh, senator um, margin in the Republican-controlled Senate. Um, they flipped that seat and uh, away they went. So, you know, that, that all, all of these things have been major priorities for the DFL for quite some time. Um, and I think that this is an example of, um, you know, they were ready to go. Um, and I, rem- I remember, um, you know, just a few months ago, um, Michigan's legislative session started earlier, so they, they got to work a little bit faster, right? And they, they've been doing a lot of the same things. Michigan's story is, is pretty similar, I think, to Minnesota's right now. Um, and I remember tweeting something like, you know, um, Minnesota's always been better than Michigan, but boy, the DFL better get their shit together if they want to keep it that way. Um, and, you know, I've never been uh, uh, more happy to say I was wrong. They had their shit together, and they... they you know, they did the thing. Good. Well, um, and uh, one final question is because we're, the audio is a little bit shaky, but I do want to get your your perspective on uh, Governor Walls's veto of the rideshare bill. That was just immediately after uh, Uber's like, you're going to do democracy. We're not going to play here. Right. Right. Are, are you guys hearing me okay? Is this- we'll boost it a little bit, but uh, yeah. All right. I'm doing my best here. Um, yeah, so let me say a few things about that. Um, I, I certainly um, would not say that I'm a shill uh, for Governor Walls. Um, I, I do think that he, uh, as Democratic governors go, he has done, um, I think, uh, a fairly good job. Um, and I, uh, you know, I think he's he's on message a lot of the time, and and you can't you can't deny. Um, you know, the fact that the vast majority of this stuff was bing, bang, boom. Um, and, and, I, and I, you know, I'm putting this all out there because I'm getting ready to talk shit after this part. But, um, you know, he just today, he signed the marijuana legalization. That's something that we've been trying to get done for literally two decades. Um, now, 
Wells vetoing the rideshare bill um, is obviously fucking terrible. Um, and it's not the only thing this legislative session that he got in the way of. Um, <clears throat> when the nurses were negotiating, uh, the nurses union was negotiating their contract, right? He uh, helped to create a carve out um, in some of the legislation around their pay and, and leave for the Mayo Clinic. Um, obviously the Mayo Clinic, huge, huge business in Minnesota. Um, and they threatened, um, I assume that they threatened the same thing that Uber and Lyft did, which is that they would leave the state. So I think, uh, I don't think that Walls is anti-labor. Um, I do think that he is, uh, you know, his spin would probably be that he is trying to balance the needs of working people with trying to keep business in the state. Um, personally, I think that's nonsense. Um, uh, and, and uh, you know, I do think that it puts kind of a, a damper on things. Um, from a strategic perspective, it might have been smarter to have that figured out before all those articles went, went out with, um, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, Congress, uh, State Congressman uh, Omar Fata uh, celebrating with all of the drivers, right? And then two days later, you know, um, so, so there was some coordination that probably should have happened from like a strategic perspective. Um, I'm also, I also can't say that I'm super surprised that he vetoed it, right? Um, these bill, th this, this is not the first time that a Democratic legislature has passed a bill like this only to have it vetoed by a Democratic governor. Um, it's kind of the tit for tat that you get with Democrats, um, you, you know, at this level. Um, yeah. he, he, he said in his statement, you know, oh, we're going to work to try to find a solution. Um, that's political speech for this isn't happening. Um, and uh, I do think, you know, the last thing that I'll say about it is I think it's a little ironic that I don't know if you guys have been following Obama's like uh, new Netflix show. Um, but yeah. he, he had an episode where he sat along with a, a Lyft uh, driver and he's like, boy, wouldn't it be nice if you made minimum wage? And she was like, yeah, it would, that would be nice. Sure. Uh, uh, it's, like, it's like, oh, super. <laughs> man. Well, he's, hey, he's listening out there. It's, you know. <laughs> that's, right. That's, that's right. Oh, he's, ta he's talking to the people. He's hearing them. He's hearing them. <laughs> uh, Izzy Barabreen, uh, uh at uh, Isaiah underscore BB. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon, Izzy. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Nice of uh, Izzy to... Uh, give us some time there um yeah i uh you know good to know what you can get out of uh uh you know actually getting some of these people into office and that thing of you know not how i just appreciate like if you're gonna fuck over the drivers if the dems are gonna if the drivers are gonna be fucked over i think it's more useful to have a democrat doing it than them saying oh you know what actually just donate here uh we'll get them next time for you um so that's uh, a political lessons in Minnesota. Oh, you're uh, muted. Uh, I just said, yeah. Um, well, folks, we're going to go over the post game, patreon.com slash left reckoning. Uh, we got some fun clips for y'all. We'll be taking your calls and questions. You can leave us a voicemail at one nine four zero two eight nine seven two three four. Obviously, if there's something you want us to talk about that we didn't get to in the main show, happy to chat about it. Then next Tuesday, we have Alex Hokley on the show um 
we're going to be talking a little bit about populism um, and the state of the left. If you're not already listening to Bunga, Bunga cast, uh, I can't endorse it enough, uh, particularly their most recent bonus episode uh, with Amberly Frost on the abolish the family, not weird uh countercultural lefty nonsense stuff uh they have a pretty good takedown of it so you should definitely check that out uh, but alex will be on the show next week and uh yeah we'll see you in the post game patreon.com slash left reckoning yep i'm gonna complain about ai uh <laughs> yep check it out soon uh about 10 minutes folks